It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 776 for the 21st of January, 2022. This week, Outlook is probably the most used email application other than Google's webmail client, but that doesn't mean it's the one people like the most. A few weeks ago, Outlook created a problem that required me to use Thunderbird temporarily. The temporary change quickly became permanent. In short circuits, other than not using the internet at all, there's no way to eliminate scam phone calls, SMS messages, and emails. Defenses do exist, though. We'll look at some. If you or someone you know is named Alexa, you might be amused by Amazon's assistant, but you're probably not amused. A Washington Post reporter named Alexa tells the story. Apple liked to say that the Macintosh computer introduced in 1984 was so easy to use that it needed no manual. In 2002, when I was learning to use my first Mac, that seemed inaccurate. Was the morning before Christmas, about 5 a.m., and Outlook wouldn't start. I followed Microsoft's recommended repair steps, but by the end of the day, I was using Thunderbird. Temporarily, I thought. I've never liked Outlook, but I was required to use it for a couple of decades in a work environment. Some useful add-ons are built for Outlook, including a mail merge function that allows me to attach files that are specific to each recipient. That's useful for emailing monthly statements, but it's not much use if Outlook itself won't run. Usually, fixing a problem with Outlook is fairly simple. I had time to investigate. The day before Christmas is a holiday around here, so I felt that I'd be able to resolve the issue probably before 9 a.m., it looked like the problem occurred when Outlook tried to load its user profile. Outlook offered to start in safe mode so I could take a look at add-ins. That's very frequently where the problem is. So after disabling all of the add-ins, I tried to restart Outlook in normal mode, and it still failed. There were no error messages. The program would just start to launch, then silently close. The Windows Event Viewer wasn't particularly helpful, but it did point to a system file, ntdll.dll, which is a module that contains NT system functions. It was called by Outlook, so, okay, possible system file corruption. Sometimes it's possible to resolve problems with system files by running a couple of common diagnostic procedures. One command calls the Deployment Image Servicing and Management function, it compares local system files with what Microsoft has online. It scans the operating system for corrupt files and attempts to repair any corrupt files that it finds. The deployment image servicing and management module ran to completion. No errors, no problems reported. The next is the system file checker. It inspects all of the essential Windows files on the computer, including the Windows Dynamic Link Library files. If problems are found with any of the protected files, SFC replaces the file with a new copy. That process also ran to completion, no errors, and reported no problems. Hmm, 
Well, Tempest was fugiting, and success was not occurring. And sincere apologies to my high school Latin teacher for that. The next step is virtually guaranteed to fix any problem with a Microsoft 365, or formerly Office 365 application. Start with the old-style control panel, choose Uninstall a Program, and pick the Repair option with Online Files. This downloads a new copy of the component and installs it over the existing application. When the process ends, the application should start and run normally. It didn't. At that point, the most likely cause would be a corrupted profile. Knowing that creating a new profile would also require setting up each of my half dozen or so email accounts individually, I considered that option with trepidation. But there was no other choice. So I created a new profile shell and expected Outlook to open normally so I could set up all of the other accounts. Once again, it didn't. Microsoft 365 seems not to have an option to remove and reinstall individual components. In the old days, that would have been the appropriate procedure. Uninstall Outlook, delete any leftover files, and create a fresh installation. I had no desire to remove the entire suite of applications, reinstall them, and configure each the way I wanted it to work. The other applications are all fine so I opted not to destroy the existing installation. I could at least use Thunderbird temporarily until I could figure out some way to restore Outlook to normal operation. Thunderbird was already installed, but I hadn't used it for several years, and of course using Thunderbird would mean that I wouldn't have access to 10,000 or more messages stored in Outlook. Well, that would be okay temporarily, because I would regain access to those messages once I fixed the problem with Outlook. But after starting Thunderbird, I remembered how much I liked the way it works. I wouldn't have the mail merge function, but I thought I could probably deal with that. What I would gain with Thunderbird is a quick and easy way to see an email's full raw text, that's a feature that I really miss with Outlook. Outlook doesn't offer any such capability and makes looking at even the message's routing headers needlessly difficult. In some ways, Microsoft is even worse than Apple when it comes to believing the end users shouldn't have to bother their pretty little heads with the details of how something works. When trying to examine spams and scams, being able to see the full raw message is helpful, so plus one for Thunderbird. But what about the 10,000 or so stored messages Thunderbird couldn't see? Not wanting people to switch away from Outlook, Microsoft makes the process of doing so as difficult and obtuse as possible. There is simply no quick and easy way to migrate the Outlook PST data file to any other application. Or is there? Actually, there is. PST Walker's PST to MBOX converter does the job. I downloaded a trial version so I could see how the application works before buying it. The trial version converts all folders in the Microsoft PST file, but it includes only a few messages per folder. That's more than enough to confirm that the program will do what it needs to do. By this point, it was mid-afternoon on Christmas Eve. The converter comes with virtually no instructions, and my attempts to second-guess the operation weren't very successful. I opened a support ticket with the developer, expecting to receive a reply during the week between Christmas and New Year's. The response arrived less than an hour later. 
And because it was the day before Christmas, I was operating in stupid mode. I wasn't able to work out the proper process without some additional assistance. It is really quite simple if you're not trying to move Outlook messages into existing Thunderbird folders with names that differ slightly from those that Thunderbird expects. The PST to Mbox converter created file names that were the same as account names in Outlook. Because the existing Thunderbird instance expected slightly different names, it couldn't see the converted folders. Simply renaming the folders seemed like it should work, but it didn't. Then, in slightly less stupid mode, a light illuminated above my head. Instead of renaming files created by the PST to Mbox converter, why not edit the name of the local directory that Thunderbird looks at? Instead of having Thunderbird look for blin-com.sbd, I could tell it to look for blin-communications.sbd. Bingo! Problem solved. Converting all of the Outlook accounts to Thunderbird's format took only a few minutes after I purchased the $25 license for the PST Walker utility. I could have saved $25 if I had been able to get Outlook to run, because a manual process does exist. But I couldn't get Outlook to run, and the manual process would have taken several days and a lot of boring, tedious effort. It was $25 very well spent. Having gotten this far, I started looking at Thunderbird extensions to see which Outlook capabilities that I liked could be replicated in Thunderbird with extensions. I had Outlook hold all messages for two minutes before sending them. It's not uncommon for me to realize immediately after clicking the Send button that I forgot to include an attachment, or neglected to explain a key point, or didn't include a CC recipient. Then I'd have to send an embarrassing follow-up message. Thunderbird doesn't have that feature, but an extension called Send Later adds not only that ability, but some other functions that Outlook doesn't have. I also like Outlook's ability to add typographic quotation marks, apostrophes, and M dashes automatically. This is also something that Thunderbird doesn't do by default, but Unicodify Text Transformer inserts typographic quotation marks and apostrophes and also converts three periods to ellipsis dots, creates properly formatted fractions, and quite a bit more. The third significant feature that I was able to activate in Outlook with an add-on is the ability to run a mail merge that inserts names, addresses, and other information from a data file into email messages so that each message is personalized. The Outlook add-on also allows me to include an attachment specific to each recipient, something that's handy if you're emailing monthly statements. Mail Merge for Thunderbird does everything except attach the personalized monthly statement PDF but the client list is small enough that adding the attachments manually is workable. Unfortunately, Thunderbird can't connect to the Outlook.com address that I use with Windows 10 accounts on various computers. This was possible in the past, but changes made either by Microsoft or by Mozilla have eliminated the ability. My Outlook.com account is rarely used for email so I can use the Mail app that's included with Windows for access to that account. Checking it once a week is more than enough. By the end of the day after Christmas, the temporary fix had become definitely a permanent change. 
Making Outlook functional again would require too much effort, and Thunderbird has matched all of Outlook's capabilities that are important to me, and extensions have actually made it better than Outlook. So, if you've grown weary of Outlook, there are other options, plural options, not just Thunderbird. I chose Thunderbird because I've used it before, know how it works, and was sure that it would meet my needs. Thunderbird is free from the Mozilla organization, but donations are encouraged. The PST to MBOX converter is available from PST Walker and is well worth the cost. All of the add-ins I've mentioned and many more can be obtained via Thunderbird's built-in add-ons manager, and you'll find links to the Mozilla organization and PST Walker on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could do something to eliminate scam texts sent to our phones, scam emails, and scam Facebook messages? Wishing doesn't make it so, though, and there's no way to send all the spams and scams to trash so that we don't have to see them. There are, however, some defenses. Some people recommend not giving any business your phone number, because some businesses sell the numbers. That's simply not realistic. It's difficult to do business with any company these days without giving the company your phone number. Even if you don't give anybody your phone number, you'll still get messages you don't want because scammers simply blast out messages to every possible phone number. When you receive a scam SMS message, you can forward it to 7726, that spells spam. The Federal Trade Commission gets it. I don't bother with this because the sender usually hides behind some legitimate number or simply uses a fake number. So it might make you feel a little better, but there's little chance that it will improve anything. Be sure you don't respond to the message in any way, though. I know it's tempting to send some profanity to these creeps, but doing so simply lets the scammers know that somebody reads messages at your number. Delete the message and block the sender leave it at that. Also, check to see if your cellular service provider offers a way to identify and block scams. Google Fi automatically blocks known scammer phone calls and SMS messages, and several other providers offer similar services, such as T-Mobile's Scam Shield and Verizon's Call Filter. Enable these to rid yourself of most of the scam messages and calls, your service provider may also offer options to always allow calls or texts from specific users, to always send calls from certain numbers to voicemail, and to screen calls from unknown numbers not known to be scammers. Google Fi's screening service plays a message to ask what the caller wants to talk about. 
If there is no response or an obvious scam response, the call is simply terminated. If the call seems legitimate, the user is shown a transcript of the caller's message and given the opportunity to accept or decline the call. If there is any hope for relief, it's in the form of technology and common sense, of course. When a scam message does make it through your defenses, keep in mind that government agencies don't do business via SMS messages. If the IRS wants to talk with you, they will send you a letter in the mail. You also probably haven't won millions in a lottery that you haven't even entered. Nobody wants to share millions of dollars with you from some account overseas. Microsoft and Apple won't send you an email or a text about a security problem with your computer. So be a skeptic. Some email programs include features designed to identify spams and scams, but the messages are already on your computer by the time the email program sees it. My preferred method uses a powerful spam filter that eliminates messages before they reach my email application. MailWasher Pro analyzes every email I receive, categorizes some as spam based on its own analysis, and marks the spams for deletion. Before collecting mail with Thunderbird, I examine the report for MailWasher Pro. Some messages are shown in green, friends, but they're still marked for deletion. These are usually from news sites and restaurants. A glance at the subject line lets me know if it's something that I really do want to see, or if it's something that I'll see later on a website, or that I just simply don't care about. If it's breaking news or an offer that I might want to use, I can clear the delete checkmark. Other entries are pink or red, indicating that they have been identified as spam because of the message's content or origin. After running the cleanup process, I'm usually left with a much more manageable list of messages that Thunderbird will receive. Knowing that it's currently not possible to eliminate all the dreck, it is at least encouraging to understand that we can make it more manageable. Chances are you don't know anybody named Siri, because it's not a common name in the United States. But it is the short form of Sigrid in Norway and Sweden. It's a virtual certainty that you don't know anyone called Google, although somebody may have given some poor unfortunate child that name. But you may know somebody called Alexa. In 2010, about 6,000 girls were named Alexa. The name had been in decline for a few years when Amazon introduced Alexa to Prime members. The name hit a steep decline, though, when Alexa was released nationally, and the Washington Post says only 1,272 girls were named Alexa in 2020. Post reporter Alexa Juliana Ard wrote an article in early December, the title, Amazon, Can We Have Our Name Back? Art is a video editor for the Washington Post. Art interviewed more than 25 people named Alexa, and her article says a few were indifferent to the connection or amused by it, but the majority were tired of interruptions from the bot and by jokes at their expense. In virtual classes, business meetings, and at auditions, Alexas said they have been instructed to avoid saying their name or arbitrarily assigned new names. That story may seem amusing, but probably not so much if your name is Alexa. 
One Alexa interviewed for the story was named for her father, Alex, who died before she was born in 1985. Today, she's a pharmacy technician, and she is not amused. Now, she goes by Lex and refuses to buy anything from Amazon. The article is relatively long, but I think you'll find it worth the time spent reading it. This is a story about what happens when some unthinking decision by a corporate marketer appropriates the name used by thousands of people. And it's not a happy story. Perhaps you'll find my first encounter with a Mac in 2002 to be more amusing. To read it, point your browser at the TechBiter Worldwide website and scroll down to 20 years ago. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music>